Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your ongoing host and interviewer each week. Today is a very special day. We've been able to take some time with the renowned thought leader and multi-best-selling author, Daniel Pink, who's joining us today from his home office in Washington, DC. Daniel, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you remotely as I, hover, as I hover over your knee there. Well, we'll make sure that I put my knee down a little bit. So it's great <laughs> to have you. Daniel, you and I have been together a couple different times over the course of uh, the last decade. We met for the first time, I think, about eight years ago in California, and we tend to kind of tend to follow you around the international speaking tour. I think whenever you and I text or email, you're always off in some far-flung place giving a, a speech, which I think is probably... Um, a lot of fun and uh, really fulfilling your mission around writing these books. So welcome to our set today as well. Uh, it's great to be here. Actually, you know, I spend most of my time here in this office, which is the garage behind my house, uh, writing books. And um, so it's nice to be able to talk to someone rather than just be here alone with my own thoughts. In fact, most people probably think the life of an author isn't as glamorous as it looks behind you, right? That's what you're doing most of the time. I think that this shot right now, if you look at me here in the office, is really the picture of glamour. You see just an array of uh, valets and servants assisting me. Um, <laughs> you see some fine uh, furniture, some, I think, pretty spectacular world-class interior design. I, it's impressive. And yeah. so, you know, I, I want to be modest in showing it off, but, you know, it's pretty impressive. Well, we're honored to have you um, joining us today, set regardless. Uh, Daniel, you have had a fascinating career. I followed you for the last you know, 12, 15 years, as have obviously many of our guests joining today. Would you take a couple of minutes to open us up and talk, us about, talk about your journey? Because you've had a fascinating career. It's been, you know, it's been interesting to watch you know, how you moved from one topic to another in terms of your career choices. It ended up becoming a really, I think, impactful author. Uh, walk us through kind of what life's been like for you. Well, you know, um, like I think, like for most of us, um, I'm, I'm, I made my way in sort of a, a haphazard, um, semi-blind way, just feeling my way along. But the long story short is that I grew up in Central Ohio. I went to college. I went to law school. I, I decided not to practice law uh, because I, I didn't find it very interesting and I wasn't very good at it. And so instead, out of law school, I started working in politics. That took me into writing speeches, not a plan, not the plan. And um, so I was a speechwriter in politics for a while. Um, I finally decided in my, you know, around age 30 or so, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I don't want to be in politics anymore. And so uh, what I was really interested in doing was writing. And, and throughout my life, I'd always, quote unquote, written on the side. I never really considered myself like a writer. I didn't think that was how I was going to make a living. But in my early 30s, I said, hey, let me try to give it a go and see if it works. And that was um, 20 years ago. And so uh, since then, I've written uh, a total of six books uh, on a range of topics, but mostly centered on work, uh, everything from uh, uh, how people are working and how they're moving away from large organizations to work for themselves, to what are the skills necessary in the emerging economy, to the science of what motivates us, to uh, career guide, to um, why persuasion, influence, and selling matters more than we realize and how to do it in a way that is based on the evidence and to the latest book, uh, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which is about all of the timing and when decisions we make in our life and how to make those decisions a little smarter and better. 
Dino, I think your career trajectory is, I think, super insightful for a lot of people because I'm guessing in many ways when you were a speechwriter for then Vice President Al Gore, you were writing all day long and you were able to transition into writing about topics of which you're own personally passionate about. What was it like to be a speechwriter for a, a national leader and how did you transfer that skill into your current passion and career? Yeah, I mean, speechwriting is a, is a weird... Uh, kind of skill. I mean, it's like, you know, those, those people who, who build, put like ships inside of bottles and things like that. It's one of those kind of peculiar skills that not very many people know how to do. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I was lucky to be able to serve in that way. Um, I was fortunate in that in politics, I had um, not, not everybody, but I had some pretty good bosses, particularly at the, at the end. Uh, and that makes a big, big difference when you're working at a, on a, as a political staffer. Um, and so uh, it was interesting. I think that the downside for me is as I, as I emer as I grew a little bit more mature, had a little bit more of a sense of myself, um, was that uh, I wanted to really say what I thought mm -hmm. rather than try to help somebody say what he or she thought. And there's a big difference as a writer in that. Uh, and one of my concerns is that I if I spend all my time writing for other people, uh, I might lose the, some of the capacity, at least, to figure out what it was that I actually thought. Um, and that was part of it. And the other one was that, I mean, truly, this is a long time ago now, and politics is much, much more corrosive today than it was back then. But even back then, it was a pretty nasty business. And it was like, and I said, this is not how I want to spend the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of my life. There's an interesting parallel between what you just said and a guest I had previous. We had Stephen M. R. Covey, who is Dr. Covey's eldest son and the author of the famed book, Speed of Trust. And I asked him a similar question, you know, what kind of took you so long to write? And he said, you know, I really didn't have anything to say. I didn't want to just write a book for the purpose of writing a book. I really had to sort of find my own voice. And once I did, I became quite convicted. It sounds like similar for you. Yeah, you were exactly. You know, I, that's a great point, Scott. I mean, people find their way at different rates of speed, different at different times in, the, in, the, in their life. And, um, uh, and I think what's most important, and I say this to my, to my own kids or to, you know, the handful of other young people who might ask me for advice is, you know, try to find your way, but there isn't necessarily a clock ticking all the time. And so, you know, I didn't, and, and, and at some level, I'm a big, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said against planning too hard and more to be said for just figuring out what it is that you do, how you do it, why you do it. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, as I said before, um, literally from the time that I was in college, I was as I mentioned earlier, I was writing uh, writing on the side. That's a phrase that I always use, writing on the side. So I'd be writing articles and essays and op-eds and things like that. But that was just sort of what I did, you know, in the same way that, you know, some people like fishing or playing backgammon or whatever, long distance running. That's, that's sort of what I did. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, really, like I was a, an, a, like a full-fledged adult with a kid that I realized, hey, wait a second, this thing that I've been doing on the side for like 15 years might be the kind of thing that I actually should be doing in the center. 
Well, I think it was a good bet for you because you can see the set that we've developed and I was able to pick all the books for the set and there's only three authors that have more than three books on the set up here. That's Stephen Covey, Seth Godin, a good friend of mine, and you, four of your six books wow. are up on the wall. So congrats I did not you. realize that. Thank you, Scott. That's awesome. That is, I, I appreciate you telling me that. That is rarefied company yeah. indeed. You have made that's it. Awesome. You've made it. I put you on the map. So. No, I think that's awesome. I'm not joking around. I think that's great. I think you, you might have kept me in the writing business for like two more weeks. <laughs> I hope so. Hey, so let's get down to business. So you've written six books, four of which I'm personally kind of obsessed with. One of my favorite, favorite books of all times is one of your first books, A Whole New Mind, which I think gave voice, kind of like Susan Cain and her book Quiet gave voice to introverts. I think you did a major service to the world by validating the rise, the relevancy of, of right-brainers, not by dissing left-brainers, but talking about the value of how the future is not going to be owned just by left-brainers, but also right-brainers. Give us a minute primer on why you wrote this book and what you think it's done for people like me that always identified as right-brainers kind of working in the left-brain organizational world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this book actually makes a pretty hard-headed economic argument, and the argument is this. So if, using the, the structure of our brain as a metaphor, um, you know, the science so shows that we use both sides of our brain for everything that we do. So to say left this, right that all the time, is, 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 not, is not accurate. But uh, our brains are also have specialties. The left side specializes in tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. The right side specializes in tasks that are big picture, uh, more about context than text, more about synthesis than analysis. And um, I thought that offered a really powerful metaphor for where the jobs of the future, the work of the future is going. And the argument in brief is basically this. That it used to be that the sorts of abilities that were metaphorically left brain, logical, linear, sequential, think of them as SAT spreadsheet abilities. Those abilities are still absolutely necessary. And this is really important. They're absolutely necessary. They're just not sufficient. Uh, and it's these kinds of abilities, abilities that, as you suggested, Scott, we've often, especially in America, have overlooked and undervalued. Um, are to, those kinds of more right brain abilities, I, I think, are actually becoming more important. And the reason is, is that the left brain abilities are easy to outsource, easy to automate. And, um, and there's an urgency now in a world of pretty significant material abundance for uh, novelty, beauty, uh, the sorts of things that come out of design thinking and, uh, and aesthetic, aesthetic thinking. And so, uh, and so what I tried to do there is identify some of the abilities that I think are going to be necessary in the workplace of the future. And, it, and, and, it, and, and I think it, I, you make an interesting point uh, about how, and it surprised me because that wasn't its intent, but it might have been its consequence, that I, I do think a lot of people who consider themselves right-brainers said, wait a second, here's this nerdy left-brain dude saying that I'm going to be all right. I kind of like that. Well, I think uh, there's three books that have given me a uh, big influence on how I parent. I have three boys, as you know, four, six, and eight. And I think there's three books that have really profoundly impacted my parenting. One is- I should buy you, I should buy you headphones rather than books. That's uh, gonna, yeah. noise canceling headphones would be far more valuable to three boys in age. Or to alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so- but They're not mutually exclusive, as I can attest. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Uh, three books that have been uh, profoundly impactful on my parenting style. One is uh, the Gallup Book Strings Finder, right, by Don Clifton and Mark. Marcus Buckingham around, really helping me to identify and draw out my boys' three individual strengths. 
phenomenal book for obvious reasons. Second is anything written by my dear friend Daniel Amen, the neuroscientist, all about protecting our brains and caring for our brains and really treating it like the valuable organ it is. My boys don't play football. We don't use, you know, we use helmets. We, I'm kind of a nerd now about protecting their brains. And this book has really made me think about what are they going to be doing 20 years from now in their career? How will their left brains or right brain natural talents come out? How do I nurture them? So as a parenting book, I think it's a great resource. Probably not how you wrote it, but I can't advocate it enough. Thank you, I appreciate that. That's great to hear. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things about being a writer is that you put something out in the world and you don't know how people are gonna react. Maybe yeah. they'll, they'll like it a lot less than you think they will. Maybe they'll like it more. But what I've always find interesting is you often end up reaching people and audiences that you didn't really have necessarily in mind right. at the outset, right. and and that that definitely happened with this book, um, with this book, a whole new mind. We ended up, uh, you know, I, I wrote it nominally as a business book, uh, but we ended up having a, a pretty uh, substantial audience in educators, parents, uh, even clergy. I can see it. Okay, so let's talk about your most recent book and the yeah. time we have today called Win. Now, Daniel, a lot of your books in many ways are very different from each other, very different topics, driving and the brain research and to sell as you know, human and this new book, Win, and in some ways they're very different. Tell us your process. I mean, how do you move from one topic to another? What inspired you to write the newest book, bestseller obviously, global bestseller, called Win? What's the process for that? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a more interesting, scintillating answer to that question. Uh, you know, I don't, um, I just really write the book I'm most interested in at that moment, whatever happens to be next. And so there isn't some, I don't have, you know, over here in my office are some whiteboards and I don't have mapped out there some grand strategy of this book's going to lead to this book, which is going to lead to that book, going to lead to that book, and this incredibly co this coherent package of things. Um, um, if there are connections among the books, you know, I leave that to readers to find. I think a lot of times there, there's certainly not any explicit connections in the creation of them. Um, if, you know, sometimes people will see things that even a writer doesn't see, and that's totally cool. Um, but for this book, uh, I, I really wrote it because I was interested in it, and, and, and really because I was frustrated. You know, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm here, and you know, this is my workplace here behind me. I'm here in this office, and I'm making all kinds of decisions about when to do things, all right? When should I do my writing? When should I have a call like this? Uh, when should I go to the gym? Uh, when should I answer my email? Uh, or even more, even, you know, other kinds of things. When should I start a new book? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And I was making those decisions in a very sloppy way. That frustrated me. I wanted to make them in a more intelligent way. Uh, and I looked around for guidance. It didn't exist. Um, you know, if you look at the wall of your 170 books there, Scott, you're, you're not going to see a book on timing. Right. Uh, and, and that's kind of weird. It's like, why not? And so I started, uh, as you know, the last few books I've written have taken a pretty heavy look at social science. And I said, well, wait a second, maybe there's some science on this. And out of curiosity, I started looking around, and, and as I looked, I was just blown away. There was so much research out there. I mean, more than I have, I mean, a, a heavy magnitude more than I ever imagined. And uh, it was across many, many disciplines, and it said some really, really interesting things. Some things that as I thought about it, I said, wait a second, this is going to change how I do things in my life. And if I can wrap my arms around this research, make it clear to readers, um, maybe it'll help them make some better decisions in their own lives. 
Daniel, for the few people who haven't read the book yet or who perhaps are buying it right now as we're talking, let's talk a little about some of the key concepts. Uh, share with us what the research shows and you help to kind of codify and name about the three stages of the day and how we identify based on our own sort of biological circadian types. Yeah, great. Uh, so, so, um, so one of the things to keep in mind there, the big picture is that, and this is really surprising to me. Like, I, I truly, I, I did not know this until I started doing the research for this book. But it's not a close call. Our cognitive abilities, our brain power, doesn't stay the same throughout the day. It changes. It can change in predictable. It changes in predictable ways. It changes sometimes in dramatic ways. And the best time to do something depends on what we're doing. And so we can piece all this research together to show, to basically make better decisions on just simply that. And this is just one chapter of the book. Just simply on that one unit of time, that unit of a day. And here's what we know. Most of us go through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us go through in that order, a peak in the, uh, in the early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. And it, um, it turns out that, and, and most of us, as I said, most of us go through in that order, about the 20% of us who are night owls, all right, something called a chronotype, which is, you know, your propensity to go to sleep early and wake up early, to go to sleep late and wake up late. People who are night owls, evening chronotypes, they're much more complicated. They often go in the reverse order, but in general, they hit their peak much, much later in the day. But here's what we know. During the peak, that's when we're highest in vigilance. Vigilance means we can bat away distractions. That makes the peak, which again, for most of us is early in the day, the best time to do analytic work work that requires heads down, focus, and attention. During the trough, which for almost all of us is that early to mid-afternoon, that's a very dangerous time. We see a whole array of data on this about uh, errors in hospitals, about hand washing in hospitals going down, about doctors writing unnecessary prescriptions during that time period, about declines in corporate performance, um, a, a rise in, in car accidents, uh, reduced performance and standardized tests. I mean, that early after to mid-afternoon period, we are not at our best. We are at our worst. And so during that period, we should be doing our administrative work, answering those routine emails that I mentioned. And, and then finally, later in the day, um, it's a very interesting time. Uh, I call it the, re call it the recovery. What's, what happens is that our mood goes back up, uh, and, but we're less vigilant. And that makes it a good time for things that require some degree of mental looseness. So iterating new ideas, brainstorming. Uh, in some ways, I mean, truly, like the, my scheduling of this particular conversation was intentional. I'm talking to you at 4, 4 p.m. my time, all right, basically the beginning of my recovery. I didn't want to have this conversation with you at 2 in the afternoon um, because I knew that I wasn't going to be at my best. And I knew that this, you know. I, I was hoping at least that you were not going to treat this interview like an investigative reporter, that you didn't have all my tax returns and were looking for unnecessary deductions and trying to trap me in contradictions. Instead, I figured, hey, it'd be typical kind of Scott where it's like big ideas. Let's talk about what this means and how it all works. And so um, what we should do is, again, circling back in our peak, analytic work in the trough, administrative work in the recovery. Uh, what scientists call insight work, uh, uh, creativity, uh, iterative kinds of things. If you're a night owl, what's really important is that you do your analytic work late in the day. And if we do the right work at the right time, we're going to perform better and we're going to feel better, period. 
Do you know, I think great business writers, and I have an opinion on that because I, I read a lot and I write a fair amount myself, have a couple of things in common. I think people like Malcolm Gladwell, Jim Collins, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink, they do something in common. That is, you tend to have an art for naming things that otherwise we knew to be true in our lives, but we couldn't quite identify them. Jim Collins does it really well with like, you know, hedgehog and flywheel and BHAGs and Malcolm and Seth do it well. You do it also well. Throughout the book, you've named things that otherwise I even didn't have a name for, but kind of knew subconsciously happened. You have this concept that you call um, larks, owls, and third birds. Will you take a minute and talk about what those have in common or how they're yeah. different and how we can identify which are we? Yeah, great. So, so, so uh, larks and owls, uh, are, that's actually not, that's like, that's been used forever. That, that, that's not anything that I made up. Um, uh, it basically is a shorthanded way to talk about people's chronotypes, which again is, do you, are you an early person or a late person? Um, and what we know is we know that about 15% uh, of the population are larks. Uh, we know about 20% of the population are owls. Um, but we also know about two thirds of the population are in between, and I call those third birds. Um, and your chronotype is the initial thing you have to figure out in order to figure out how to do the right work at the right time. Um, there's an instrument, a scientifically validated instrument online that called the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire that people can use to determine their chronotype. We can also, there's also a very easy back of the envelope way to do it. In fact, I could do it with you, Scott, right now. Figure, I could figure out your chronotype or have a good guess of it in probably 35 seconds if you're interested. Try me. Okay, so here's what I want you to think about. This is an important concept in chronobiology, which is, there's a whole field called chronobiology, chrono meaning time, biology studied life, uh, about um, various kinds of uh, daily and other kinds of time-based rhythms. Uh, the guys who won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2017, Americans, uh, were chronobiologists. Uh, and so chronobiologists refer to something as a, something called a free day. I want you to think about what's called a free day. A free day is a day you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock uh, and you're not massively sleep deprived, okay? So you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock, you're not massively sleep deprived. So on a typical free day, uh, when, would you, when would you go to sleep? Like you have a free day the next day, when would you typically go to sleep? Uh, 10 o'clock. Oh, okay, 10 o'clock. And then when would you typically wake up? 5.36. Okay, let's call, it, let's, let's call it six, okay? okay? So what we're doing here is we're figuring out your midpoint of sleep. And your midpoint of sleep, if you go to sleep at 10 and wake up at six, on a free day, you do this on a free day, okay? Right. Is, um, is, uh, is, would be 2 a.m., all right? So you, my friend, are a serious lark. Yes. Um, what we know <laughs> is, that, um, is that if your midpoint of sleep is before 3.30, you're probably a lark. If your midpoint of sleep is after 5.30, you're probably an owl. And if it's between 3.30 and 5.30, which is most of us, um, you're in the middle, you're a third bird. So, um, so you're a lark. Uh, does that make sense to you? I mean, that's, you're yeah, not, it's 100%. not even close at all. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're the kind of person. So, so for you, it's basically peak trough recovery. Yeah. Uh, you should be doing your analytic work uh, in the morning and probably somewhat early in the morning, uh, earlier than somebody like me. I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm larky. So my midpoint of sleep would be typically around uh, 4 a.m. So I'm, a, you know, so I'm, I'm a third bird, but not like really dead in the middle. I actually have a very common chronotype. And, um, and for me, it's like I should do my most important work, my analytic work in the morning. But, you know, I, I, I'm not the kind of person who gets to the office at 7 o'clock in the morning and starts working. Yeah, my best work, as I've read your book and thought about this, my absolute best work 
is probably between like seven and 10.30, maybe wow. stretched right. to yeah, about 11. 100%. And then at 11, I'm all about lunch and thinking about kind of girding up for the afternoon, 100%. Right, makes perfect sense. And it's interesting, yeah, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, and so if we're, and the thing is, is like a lot of us aren't intentional about these kinds of things. And, um, and you know, this is a, there's so many hard problems out there in business and work and organizations to solve. There's so many tough problems out there. This is an easier one to solve. And one area where I, I really want people to start rethinking things has to do with meetings. Think about the huge amount of time we spend in meetings. And when we schedule meetings, the only criterion we ever use when we schedule meetings is availability. We say, who's available and is the conference room open? We don't say, hmm, what kind of meeting is this? Is this a meeting where people have to be heads down and analytical and focused? Is this a meeting where we want them to brainstorm and be a little looser? Is this a meeting about the travel voucher policy? Who's gonna be there? Uh, early people like Scott, mid-range people like, like me, uh, late, you know, owls like um, some of my friends and colleagues. We don't think about that. We just, um, we don't, and, and we should be thinking about that. So when, when we allow these decisions about when to do things, when we make those decisions systematically, we do better. And what frustrates me is, and if there's any mission I'm on with this particular set of ideas, it's this, that we tend to be very intentional about what we do. So we have to-do lists. We tend to, I mean, I have my to-do list written like literally right here, right, right. And I'm a right hand here. It's, I'm right-handed, you know, and I write it down right here, right? We, uh, so we're intentional about what we do. We're intentional in some ways about who we do it with, even how we do it. But when it comes to when we do stuff, we're just not intentional. We think it doesn't matter, and it matters a lot. Um, and this is a, and what we know from this research, this mountain of research that's out there, is that 20% of the difference in how people perform uh, you know, at, at, on the job, we can attribute to time of day. That's a big deal, and we can do something about it. Yeah, it's actually a massive deal. In fact, the research in your book about the hospital of doom and such is kind of horrifying. For our, our viewers today, talk a little bit about some of the statistics around incidents of um, accidents in hospitals. Well, you're a father. I mean, I mean, now I, you know, I'm a father. My kids, I, I have about a roughly a 10-year lead on you. Yeah. Um, but you're 20 and, years older, so that makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, Wait, stay um, with us. Don't hang up. <laughs> the um, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like, like, I mean, seriously, Scott. I mean, in my family, like, we do not do. No one is permitted to have an important doctor appointment, or God, you know, if they have to go to the hospital for something discretionary in the afternoon, period, wow. full stop. Wow. It is not allowed. Uh, and the reason that the evidence here is overwhelming. I mean, just overwhelming. So if you look at anesthesia errors, anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Uh, if you look at colonoscopies, uh, doctors find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. Hand washing in hospitals goes down markedly in the afternoons. Doctors far more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in uh, afternoon appointments versus morning appointments. I mean, it is just, the evidence is overwhelming that, um, uh, there's a problem in medical care in the afternoons. And so if you can avoid it, it is worth doing that. Now, you know, I happen to, if you have just a routine medical appointment, you're getting your teeth cleaned. It's not as, it's not as urgent, but you know, what, so, so I'll get my teeth cleaned at two o'clock in the afternoon because that's when I'm at my worst. So I might as well just sit in the chair and be tortured. 
Mm-hmm. But um, but one of our daughters, our 19-year-old, is is having her needs to have her wisdom teeth taken out. She she's going to be she's going to have general anesthesia. There is no way on God's green earth she's going into anything but an early morning appointment. And Daniel, in your book, you talk about how it isn't unique just for the industry. You talked about the judicial industry, financial industry. Oh. Talk about the paroles as well. Oh my gosh! If you look at like jury and 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 uh, ju- uh, judicial decision making, it's unbelievable. So there's one study there. It's very, tr- I mean, there are a lot of troubling studies. So there's one study where, if you, where they, they simulated a jury and they gave the jurors uh, a common set of facts. Okay, so they, you say, you need to assess the guilt of this criminal defendant. And they gave two groups of people the same set of facts. The only thing that was different was in the first group, the defendant's name was Robert Garner. And in the second group, the defendant's name was Roberto Garcia. And so when the jurors deliberated in the morning, they made the same decisions about these defendants. But when they deliberated in the afternoon, the jurors were more likely to exonerate Garner and convict Garcia on the same set of facts. So we're just at certain. Again, our cognitive abilities aren't the same. And so when there's this decrement to our cognitive abilities, we're hasty, we're lazy, we take shortcuts, we don't deliberate. And um, we, we can make different and often worse decisions. There's a famous study out of Israel about judges making parole decisions. Huge differences based on time of day and whether a judge grants parole or not. Um, and so, you know, like you, you, have a, you have literally, literally like it's five, six X difference if your parole hearing is first thing in the morning or immediately after a judge's break. Um, the difference between, in many cases, between having a, a parole hearing right before the judge has her break and right before the judge, right after the judge has her break, okay, uh, that's like probably a, a seven to one difference. In, in one case, before the break, you have about a 10% chance of getting parole. After the break, you had about a 70, 70% chance of getting parole. So again, there are these, you know, time is at some level invisible, right? Like time is an abstract notion. We don't see time, right? You and I don't see time on our screen right here, but it is pervasive and it has this effect on what we do, how we do it, uh, that is profound. And if we're awake to it, if we make it visible, we can do a little bit better. I'm hoping to keep my parole experience to a minimum in the coming years, but I'll keep you posted. <laughs> uh, bring it back to organizations, Daniel. I mean, I work for Franklin Covey. We're a global company. You know, hundreds of millions of people around the world have a similar kind of life during the day, right? We spend most of our waking hours in organizations. And I, and I got to think mo- most people like me manage our time around our boss's style, right? For example, yeah. I report to the CEO. He is... He's kind of all three. I mean, he, he sleeps probably four to five hours a night. He likes to have marathon meetings. Bob is, has got you know, serious stamina. And he, it's nothing for him to have three, four, five hour long meetings. By 11 o'clock, my mind is out and I'm thinking about lunch. And I like to leave and go to lunch and repair and come back. What advice do you give people like me that have to build their cycles and adjust them around the leaders who may be very different than our own? Great question. I, I think in your case, I think you could probably get go to lunch and come back. The meeting will still be going on and you probably didn't miss anything. So that's one, that's one solution for you. The, um, but it's, it's a really, really good question. And let me give you two different ways of, uh, let me just give you two different ways of thinking about it. One, one way is, um, Let me start. Let me start with a, with a with a more tactical approach. I, I think in that kind of case, 
um, it's important to recognize when you are at your best uh, and to know that. And um, and if you have to go to a meeting or something like that, when you're not at your best, to take some affirmative steps to mitigate some of the some of the downdraft. So let's say that you, Scott, have to do a meeting at um, two. Two, all right. So first of all, your organization should not be having important meetings at two. You can have meetings about, unless there's a crisis, you can have meetings about like administrative stuff at two. But in general, don't have meetings on important stuff at two. But let's just say that that word hasn't gotten out yet. So it's two o'clock. So here's what I would do, Scott. Um, I would think hard in advance of that meeting. So maybe during at 7.30 in the morning, as you anticipate that two o'clock meeting, in your office, sit down for 15 minutes, think about what you want to accomplish at that meeting, what, if anything, you need to say, what questions you might need to ask, what facts you might need to um, find, what commitments you might need to secure from the people there. Like very seriously, like write down that stuff. Like what's, what are you trying to accomplish at that meeting? Uh, and then actually sort of fashion it into like a mini checklist. Uh, one of the things that has uh, averted some of the problem with the time-based uh, issues in, in medical care is checklists. Uh, checklists are, you know, Atul Gawande wrote a terrific book about this. Uh, it ends up being one of the remedies for some of the, the, the problems in, in hospitals. So make your checklist of what you need to accomplish during your peak time. That way, when you're in the meeting, you can rely on that and not have to rely on your hazy memory. The other thing that I would recommend that you do before that two o'clock meeting, Scott the Lark, is to take a walk around the block. You can take a walk outside. Uh, there's some great research on the restorative effects, replenishing effects of movement of nature. Take a walk around. Take a walk around the block. Um, there's some good research on the restorative effects of of uh, doing a, a good deed for somebody. So take a walk around the block and and come back and like bring a box of cookies for other people in the office or something like that. Um, and so take those kinds of affirmative steps. Have your checklist um, and 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 take a break. Uh, what we know to be a replenishing break right before that. That's the tactical answer. The other side of it is that I think that leaders, I put the onus more on leaders than on the individuals because, you know, I think that what leaders have to do is be strategic about when they do things in an organization. And the leaders themselves have to recognize that all times are not created equal, that all people don't have the same kind of chronotype that people are better at certain times of day. And at some level, you know, I, I don't like how we're always, I, I recognize the reality of it, but part of me wants to push back. You know, we always talk about when there's this mismatch between the individuals and the organization, we wanna say, well, what can the organ individuals do to adapt? And for me, it's like, well, wait a second, maybe some of that should be on the organization to be more adaptable itself and be more accommodating for the talented people who work there. Well said, Daniel. I think as a leader, I can influence the meetings that I have. I, I, since reading your book, I'm much more mindful now of sort of tackling the harder topics in the morning. I'm at my best. I'm least fatigued. I'm most creative. I'm probably most collaborative, quite frankly. Yeah. So I'm trying to kind of portion my day between certain things in the morning and other right. things necessary in the afternoon. You also share in your well, book, I think. The other thing about that, Scott, just, that, just that if, you, if I can add one thing to that, is that, like that, that, that's awesome. And, and, and as a leader, now you're going to have people on your team who are owls. And so. Well, I fired them. Is you don't want to put them in an 8 a.m. meeting. And you want to allow them to do the kind of heads down focus work that you're able to do at 7 in the morning. You want to free them up at like 5 or 6 or whatever and let them do their thing then. 
and you know, not drag them into 8 a.m. meetings unless it's absolutely necessary and not freak out if they're not at their desk at 9.15. Daniel, to accommodate those, you know, says easy, does hard, do you find that there's sort of a, a middle area where most professionals can be at their peak? Is there a sweet spot, like 10 to 11 or something? It varies. Um, I mean, here's the thing, Scott. Well, I mean, yes and no, because again, at some level, the entire world of work, particularly the corporate world, is not fit for owls, all right? Right, it, right. It, and, and so, it's really fit for the 80% of us. And so, you know, in general, 80% of us are moving through the day peak trough recovery. And so there's a, there's a very strong argument for protecting people's time um, to do heads down work in general in the morning. Um, and then um, distributing the nonsense to the early afternoon and then in the mid, sort of the late afternoon and, and early evening Doing more, uh, doing more of the stuff that involves iteration and, and collaboration. I mean, I think as a general rule of thumb, you're going to get most people that way. Um, what that does, though, is it disadvantages, uh, it disadvantages the owls. But I think the important thing is just to simply have that conversation because that conversation in general is not going on uh, inside of um, yeah. inside of most companies. Yeah, I think we're just right. not taking these when questions seriously enough. And, you know, it's frustrating because it's like it's it's wrongheaded. It's frustrating to me because it's an easy win, man. I mean, this is not you know, there's I just feel like, as I said before, there's so many tough problems out there. Uh, and this one we can actually do something about. I think in many ways, your book, like your previous books, you've given us sort of permission to take control of managing our time during the day based on our own you know, our own cycles, our own passions. A couple more thoughts I want to talk about. One is you, you uncover, kind of talk about some unconventional wisdom around coffee and water and exercise in the morning. Touch on that. I was, I was interested to hear your points of view around first morning routines and what's best for our bodies. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. There's some really interesting science on this. Um, it's, it's, and I started changing, you know, it's, have a drink of water, have a glass of water first thing in the morning. That's one of the best things that you can do. Um, it turns out we're massively dehydrated uh, overnight and most of us don't realize that. Second you thing- You mentioned, Daniel, you mentioned how often do you go eight hours during the day without consuming some liquids? Why would you go further after you know, waking up? It, right, I mean, that, that's actually really, that's a, that's a, and that's a, and again, that's not the kind of thing it's like, oh, I'm not a boss of an organization, I'm not the CEO, I can't do that. Like, yeah, you can, you can do that. Right. Uh, the other thing is interesting research on, on coffee consumption, uh, particularly in the morning. Uh, uh, in general, it seems that having coffee right when you wake up is not the best idea in the world. Uh, the reason for that is that when we first wake up, we start producing a stress hormone known as cortisol. Uh, it's actually one of the things that wakes us up. And um, caffeine interferes with the production of cortisol. So what we're better off doing is waiting for our cortisol levels to peak, which takes maybe about an hour after awakening. And when they start dropping, then hit it with coffee. Coffee seems to be a little bit more uh, effective uh, an hour, hour and a half after we get, wake up than, um, than, than, than right away. Um, and, um, and as for exercise, um, this is here I think the research yields some very, very clear guidance on time of day and exercise. Uh, it really depends on your goals. Morning exercise tends to be better for habit formation. Uh, it tends to be better for weight loss if that's what your goal is. Uh, it, it also, uh, morning exercise provides an enduring mood boost. Um, and so if you exercise late in the day, you know, you get a mood boost, but you sleep away some of it. So morning exercise is good for that. On the other hand, uh, afternoon, early evening exercise is good for other things. 
Um, people tend to enjoy that more uh, because I think a lot of it has to do with body temperature. They're literally more warmed up. So people tend to report enjoying it more, finding it less effortful. That's certainly the case for me. Uh, people, uh, it's better for avoiding injury, I think, again, because people are literally more warmed up. There are also some very, very interesting effects on, they're not massive for those of us who are civilians, but, they're, but they exist. Uh, some interesting effects on performance. So uh, late in the afternoon, early in the evening, um, our lung function is higher, our hand-eye coordination is better, uh, our speed is better. Uh, and so there are actually, believe it or not, a disproportionate number of world records in speed events uh, were made between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. So, um, so, so again, you can make, like on that, you know, you can make some tweaks about figuring out the best time for you to exercise. For me, it was helpful because I always hated morning exercise. It, I hated it. And that, so, so I basically, so, so for me, it's like, because I'm, I'm a larky, I get in the office, I do my heads down stuff straight away. Um, I spend the afternoons trying to do other kinds of things. And then in the late afternoon and early evening, I try to do the exercise uh, because that's the time that it feels less mm -hmm. um, painful <laughs> to me. I can relate because as a lark, I can't work out in the morning because my mind is so focused on creativity, wanting to solve problems. I want to call people and email and get things going. In the afternoon for me, my, my creative energy is gone, and now I can use the evening workout to kind of work through some of my stress or pressure. My mind yeah. is kind of relaxing in the evening. Right, right, right. And again, it's like, you know, again, there isn't, this isn't one size fits all. So other people are going to have different, you know, other people love that mood boost that they get from the early morning exercise. They exercise in the morning, they've gotten it done. They know they're not going to get interrupted later in the day. They have a mood boost that lasts throughout the day. Um, you know, again, I think what's important here as it, it, it was important is this concept of intentionality. We need to be intentional about these kinds of things. And when it comes to timing decisions, we're often not intentional. We default into our decisions uh, or, or we think that they don't matter. And then they do matter, the evidence is there. And if we're intentional about when we do things, we are going to do better and feel better. Dean, okay, some final thoughts here as our time ends. The book, when is mainly focused on kind of mastering your day, right? Your daily energy and, and, and cycles and such. But you also talk about longer periods of time in life. You oh, talk yeah. about slump points, which I found fascinating. I just turned 50 oh. a month ago. Talk about some of the research around slump points and peak points in life. Well, again, I mean, you know, the, the day is just a, a, is a, it's really just one facet of, of the book. Because um, a lot of our lives are episodic, um, you know, like like careers, relationships, jobs, whatever, are a series of episodes. And so uh, I've got a chapter on beginnings, how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us, how groups synchronize in time. So time has a timing and timing have a very, very wide scope here. But uh, what you're referring to is some of the research on, on midpoints. And it's fascinating. Midpoints have a dual effect. When we hit the middle of something, sometimes it drags us down. Other times it fires us up. So what you see is that around people your age and my age, you see a sag in well-being. It's well, like if you think about uh, well-being on the vertical axis and age on the horizontal axis, you see over time, you see this U-shaped curve of well-being. There's not a midlife crisis, but there's a little bit of a slump there in the middle around, truly around our, our age. Um, uh, on the other hand, you see other evidence with teams showing that if you give a team a certain amount of X amount of time to 
do a project during the first half of time, they won't do anything and they won't get started until the exact midpoint. So there's some really, really interesting effects mm -hmm. on our behavior of these various stages of our episodes. Beginnings exert one effect, endings exert another effect, and the midpoint stuff is really, really interesting. Sometimes, as I said, sometimes they fire us up, other times they drag us down. And simply being aware of midpoints um, can help you navigate them more effectively. I don't think prior to reading your book, I had named those myself, so I didn't always know this is why this is happening. This is why I feel like I'm in a slump, you know, in my day, in my month, in my life for that matter. That helped a lot. Hey, so what are you working on next? You're a pretty prolific writer, one of the most prolific out right now in the, in the business world. What's next on your horizon? You know, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm working through a bunch of, of um, working, working through a bunch of ideas. I, I don't feel a, a strong need to, to, to rush it. I mean, writing a book is a, is a pretty significant undertaking. You know, I, I spent a couple of years on it. I spent a lot of time in the research mm -hmm. and uh, you live with it for a very long time. So I only want to pick stuff that I'm, that I myself, I'm really, 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 really interested in. And that's a fairly high bar. Um, you know, it's a fairly high bar. You know, it's like if you want to write an article about something, yeah, that's fine. You know, I, I, you know, there's a lot of great stuff to write articles about. When it comes to the commitment of a book, though, you have to. I have a very, very high bar. So, um, so I have in the past, I have written entire book proposals that I've thrown out because I wasn't committed to the idea, um, or I didn't think the idea was good enough. Um, so, uh, so I'm figuring out what, if anything, will scale that high bar. So who's influencing you? What books are you reading and who are you finding to be uh, uh, you know, kind of cutting edge right now as you look at research? Oh, I mean, there's, so much, there's so much good stuff out there. It's crazy. There's so much good stuff out there. Some of it is, some of it is, on, your, some of it is on your wall there, like right behind you. I see the word, I see the book on your left shoulder. I see Switch, which was a, a great book. I also really love uh, the Heath Brothers' uh, Decisive. Yeah. Um, You've got the what's the, what's the book over there? The hairy orbiting the giant hairball. Oh, orbiting the high the giant the, uh, the orbiting the giant hairball. Oh my gosh, it's yeah. an excellent book. That is a classic book that everybody uh, that everybody that everybody should read. I, um, I have really liked recently. Um, there's a really good business narrative called Bad Blood hmm. um, uh, about the Theranos scandal, which I found just a yeah. riveting read. Yeah. Um, I like many other people. I liked uh, the book. I liked the book uh, *Sapiens*. Yes, uh, yep. that was a really, really interesting book. Yep. Um, um, I, you know, as a, as a, as an introverted person, I love Susan Cain's *Quiet*. Mm -hmm. um, there. Um, oh, I mean, I just see seven habits of highly effective people. I mean, so seven. Oh, seven habits is classic. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times that I have said, begin with the end in mind. Right. Mm. I mean, truly, I think I might have said that today. Um, so that um, there's a, a couple of books up here, like uh, there's a book about, okay, so this book here, I'll show you two. These books, this is by a dude at Stanford um, about how human beings behave, um, mm. um, how much of it is linked to biology. This book, which is a um, University of Chicago Press, not a big popular book called Uncivil Agreements by Liliana Mason. It basically explains what's going on in politics today. Wow. Um, there, I mean, just there's so much, so much, so much good stuff out there. I'm gonna have to build my walls higher to accommodate your reading list now. <laughs> yeah, or you, yeah, you, you, or you need a um, bigger studio. 
uh, your bigger studio or or, or, or or here's another solution Scott tell people to start publishing smaller books <laughs> or just digital <laughs> digital books Daniel thank you for your time honestly you are crisscrossing the nation keynoting speaking all the time I don't know if there's a conference that you're not being asked to keynote I know that if you have clients out there that would like to have you keynote they can go to your website right and work with your agent to see if you're available so yeah sure just check my website danpink.com uh, there's information on all the books there's a whole resource se section there of all kinds of groovy stuff for, for people to um, your newsletter and your in your your pink cast podcast are exceptional Thanks. So we got the pink cast going on, which are 90 second ish right. uh, short videos right. with uh, science based tools and tips, yeah. uh, email newsletter. It's all free. Just go to dampink.com. We've got some good stuff there. Daniel, thank you for your friendship. We hope to have you back, interview again on your next book. Uh, tell the family we said hello, and we so appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much all for right. having good me. Good luck to you, sir. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you back here next week with a new guest. Thanks so much.